Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and I'm here with another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. I'm so excited to introduce to you my guest for this week. Her name is Tony Herbert, and she runs a website called The Reggio Parent, which is this lovely, beautiful little website that kind of makes the Reggio approach more accessible and easier to put into practice in your everyday life as a parent. Tony, so welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about Reggio because I think that that's something that probably some people will know what it is and some people will be like, what? So I would love for you to just introduce us a little bit to Reggio. Hi, thank you, Laura, for having me. Um, of course, yes, it's definitely one of the approaches that I think needs demystifying. Um, so it originated in Reggio Emilia in Italy just after World War Two and was actually in response to fascism. And its founder is Loris Malaguzzi. So it is the name of a place, not a person. And it's still evolving in Reggio today. It's in the infant and toddler um, centers and in the preschools in Reggio Emilia. But it's also become a reference point for early childhood education around the world. So the approach is really based on some foundational principles. And one of the main ones is the image of the child. And this is very much about having this vision of children as competent and capable, resilient. It's not this kind of deficit model of the child where we see them as these empty vessels that need filling with knowledge and information. And when we have this image of the child, I think we could all agree that when we see children as citizens in their own right not carved out separately from the world of adults but very much as being and not just becoming it impacts our interactions with children and our relationships with them and so we really embrace this image through the other principles which is listening to our children it's, it's very simple it's listening to their big ideas and their theories and Reggio approach also believes that children learn best in relationship with others so that's other children, other adults. It's also in relationship with materials. So there's a lot of emphasis on materials as languages. So I think a lot of people see Reggio as um, very arts-based. It is a lot more than that, but we do use these, what Loris Malibusi called the 100 languages um, of communication um, and expression. So things like painting, 
drawing, play, um, but also movement and theatre and things like that. That's a, a huge part of the Reggio approach. And they believe that the environment acts as the third teacher. So your environment is rich in these materials. And that, I believe, is something we can really translate into our homes. We don't have to recreate a Reggio-inspired classroom, but we can have some of these languages and these materials accessible to our children. And they can use them for expression. There's no hierarchy between these languages. So in traditional schooling, you often find that, you know, verbal written language is you know, the dominant way of communicating and children expressing themselves. There's a lot of emphasis on that. But in the Reggio approach, there's a lot more exploration and representation through these other materials. Okay. So I heard two pieces there that I feel like I want to pull out. The first is I love this idea that the environment is an, has an active role, is a participant in the education of children. And I like this is something that I teach in my course, Respectful Parenting 101, that the environment, if you're in a typical two-parent home, then you should consider the environment to be your third parent. You can use it intentionally to hold boundaries and to support your goals for your kids and to support them in being successful. So I love that idea. I hope we can talk about that more. But I also really loved this idea of the materials being kind of the words for kids too. So this is something that I teach in my class, Playful Healing, that the toys and play objects that kids are using are their words. And so we want them to have a rich and flexible vocabulary so that they can express themselves through their play. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works in terms of like the materials we have in our homes? Yeah, so I mean, in Reggio, uh, someone called Gandini called it an alphabet. So it's like children learning the alphabet with these materials. So in Reggio, Emilia, we work a lot with open-ended materials and mm-hmm. toys. I mean, you don't have to throw everything out and, you know, just go for it. We, a lot of what you have can be used in different ways. So we have a lot of blocks and loose parts, if you're familiar with those. So these are just found objects. They can be bought, so you can get, like, little wooden-type I don't know how to describe them, actually, like little people. Um, but they're just, they're in the shape of a person, but they've got no painting on them or characteristics or anything like that. But you can also use found objects, um, stones and shells and anything that you come across on nature walks and things like that. And just having these materials accessible in our homes um, so that children can then use them in whatever way they want to, mm-hmm. rather than as sort of asking them, we're not asking them to do anything with them necessarily. Although one way in which you might use them is if your child has a theory or a big idea or they're trying to tell you something but they're really struggling to find the words and you might say, well, can you show me with a pencil or uh, the clay or the loose parts what that might look like? Absolutely. So loose parts is something that I Pinterest search a lot because I feel (laughs) like very drawn. So there's a lot about Reggio Amelia, the Reggio approach that feels very visual and like visually enticing to me. So like I will search on Pinterest for things like loose parts play or provocations. Um, And I see them on Pinterest and it feels so out of reach for me sometimes because it just feels so intimidating. You know, the people on Pinterest are professionals. Their stuff is beautiful. When I look at it, I feel like, oh my gosh, that feels like a lot. 
And so it is intimidating for me and it stops me sometimes for doing it. But I do have some loose parts. Um, So loose part play, we can talk about it a little bit, but my loose parts collection looks like a few trays of things like seashells, um, the little glass beads that you would maybe use in flower arranging, you know, that would go in the bottom of a vase, marbles, buttons. And most of these things I find at thrift stores. So I don't have to spend any money on them, you know, or very little money on them, those types of things. But like, so my kids have an entire practically closet filled with beautiful handmade felt play food that my mother-in-law makes for them. It's beautiful. They never touch it when they are playing in the play kitchen. They only ever use loose parts when they're playing in the play kitchen. And, you know, like the little gems and little seashells. And it's lovely. I can see why they're appealing too. like if they're making a soup in the play kitchen, like the play vegetables are set. They're one thing, right? It's a carrot. It's an apple. It's a piece of broccoli. You know, they can only be the one thing. Whereas these little loose parts allow for endless possibilities. That's what I love about loose parts. So if you are Pinteresting, don't be intimidated. Don't let it get in your way, right? (laughs) Definitely. And Pinterest is something that I will, if we talk about provocations activities a little bit later, it's something that I'm always wary of Pinterest. So I could talk a bit about that now. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about provocations and what that is, because I feel like when I do see them on Pinterest, I think that they are kind of almost misrepresent the point is. But let's talk about provocations in a minute. But the Reggio approach is an approach to education, right? It's an educational pedagogy. Yes. And so there are official Reggio preschools and early childhood centers. And then there are Reggio inspired educational centers. So I just wanted to contextualize that. I know many parents were intending to be able to send their kids to preschool and wanted to be able to maybe even choose this. And now the kids are staying home. They're not going to daycare in the same way that they used to. And so maybe some of these discussions will be helpful to parents who want to bring a bit of this approach to their home now that their kids are not having access to preschool or daycare. Okay, so provocations, what are they and how do we do them? So provocation, basically, it's an activity, but it's open-ended and it's to provoke thought. It's to inspire and it originates from within the child. So we are listening to our children and we're listening to their theories and we're listening to their big ideas. We are using the materials that we have in our environment. We are setting up just very simple an activity to provoke thoughts so for example I observed my children my eldest was really interested in shadows for a while and she was coming up with all these ideas she was actually calling them reflections so I gave her the vocabulary we talked about shadows I didn't correct her exactly and I think that's an important thing to mention that when we are listening to our children's theories it doesn't matter if they're not right the most important thing is the process of them constructing these ideas with you in relationship with you and the environment around you right it's process over product yeah yeah it's very much process and so when she started talking about shadows with me I thought okay what could I set up could inquire a little further so the Reggio approach it is very inquiry-led and project-based which people might be a bit more familiar with these concepts if they're homeschooling or if they're looking into at home educating um and so I very simply got a lamp from my desk upstairs we turned the lights off in one of the rooms with a big white wall and we turned it on and we explored our shadows and we talked about it and we then put some other things in front of it used some colored transparent objects 
then my daughter came up with more ideas to go and get things. So that's a provocation. It doesn't need all these like intricate little bits and you don't have to spend ages the night before setting up. Yeah. I want to ask a question because this is something that I feel like I misunderstood about the Reggio approach and provocations specifically. My approach to education with my kids and to parenting with them is a constant effort in releasing my agenda of not projecting what I want onto them as opposed to holding space for them to, you know, fully become who they are without my interference, right? So the idea that I want to be a gardener for my kids, carefully tending the soil, providing a good environment that they can flourish in as opposed to being a carpenter where I'm shaping them, right? And so when I look on Pinterest at provocations, they feel very adult-led and adult agenda-driven. And so I really like what you're saying, that these provocations are inquiry-based and are based on the child's interest. I think that that's the part that's intimidating for me sometimes, because like it would be easy to do a provocation that's adult-led. Like, I want my kids to explore letters, so maybe I'll put a, a sand tray and some letter cards, you know, or some gems at a mirror and they can build letters. Like, that's my agenda, right? So how do we find out what theirs are? You know, like you noticed that your daughter was exploring shadows. Like, how does the average parent find out what their kids are interested in? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's a skill. I think it's something that takes us a while because we do have to let go of our agenda. We really, truly have to listen and observe. And documenting really helps. This is at the core of the Reggio Emilia approach. They spend a lot of time in observation, taking photographs. And so in Reggio Emilia, they take a lot of time to take photographs and videos and voice recordings of the children, they even sketch the activities that are going on. And then reflecting back on those, it's like, what is going on here? What learning is taking place and how can I extend that? And I think that's something we can do in the home very simply. We don't need to actually, I think we take a lot of pictures of our children anyway and a lot of videos. I would encourage, and I think this will come into, you know, if we talk about daily rhythm later, just taking that time, slowing things down, making sure you have got a big block of time where children can really become engaged in the materials and in their environment so you can observe what they're doing and listen to what's, not just what they're saying, but with their interactions with the materials around them. Okay. So you're saying that kids need a good stretch of time for independent play so that they can get deep into whatever it is that that's important to them. And I also heard something that I really like that I feel like I haven't heard before, that if we're really listening to kids, that observation is a form of listening. Yes. So listening, you know, we often think of just as, as a verbal interaction, but what you were saying before in the Reggio approach, that no form of communication is elevated above the others. And so So if we want to truly listen to our kids, a good deal of our time needs to be spent in observation of them. Is that it? That's exactly it. I love that. It reminds me of a, a Magda Gerber quote. Magda Gerber is the person who founded Rye, which is Respectful Parenting Approach for Kids to and Under. And this quote is my favorite of hers and my favorite general parenting recommendation. So she says, do less, observe more enjoy most. And I think that that is just a beautiful, like just representation of just the kind of the simplicity of respectful parenting. Do less, step back, hold back, observe more, get come to know your children on a deeper level and enjoy them. Like truly like enjoy the process of coming to know them as they emerge in front of you. 
I hope you can see how it's not all that different, the approach. It mm -hmm. aligns so well with respectful, responsive parenting. And it's all about having that image of a child. And yeah, and that image of adult as well, this top-down approach. But, you know, they talk a lot about co-constructing knowledge together. So, you know, you're not, as I mentioned before, giving them all the information using open-ended questions, the listening, and your, yeah, just co-constructing understanding of the world around you. And you don't have to know all the answers. That's the beautiful thing. I've learned so much over the last three and a half years of parenting. Um, I mean, I'm an early years educator, but actually doing at home with my children and being able to very closely follow their curiosities mm -hmm. has meant that, you know, I have to be, okay, they'll ask a question or she'll come up with something and I'll be like, okay, I don't really know. I wonder, can we go and find the answer to that? And well, what do you think? And, you know, she comes up with these magical ideas, which they always do in the early years. You know, it's often mm -hmm. just beautiful imagination and just to run with that and not worry that, as I said before, not worry that it's, you know, not factually correct. Yeah. I feel like there's so much time for them to learn facts. And right now they're learning to embrace curiosity yeah. and embrace not knowing, right? That yeah. state of curious, open, not knowing is a beautiful thing to cultivate in a child and in ourselves. Exactly. And that is a huge thing in the ratio approach. Um, the teacher as researcher, and we can apply this to parents as researcher, and to kind of reflect and question our own knowledge and what we feel we know about the way children learn. And yeah, be open. Um, and it makes us feel vulnerable because we feel like we need to know the answers. And but that kind of being in crisis, they call it, is, is great for learning. It pushes us on and it pushes our children on. Hey, okay. So with all of this talk of play that we're doing in this episode, I wanted to just make sure you know that my 30 days of play challenge is coming up. It starts in just a few days and there's still time for you to get signed up and join us in this fun, immersive play challenge. I'm so excited for it. So if you have ever felt overwhelmed by how often your kids ask you to play, felt frustrated by how infrequently they play independently and how much they need you for play, if you'd love to have the energy and ability and time to sit down and play with your kids, but you just don't know where to find it, or maybe you feel so bored and resentful of playtime with your kids, all of those things are okay. All of your feelings are valid. All of your feelings are normal. You see, somewhere along the line, we as parents got the message that we're responsible for our kids' play. And that turned it into a job. And the quickest way to suck fun and joy out of something is to layer in obligation, pressure, shame, and guilt. And so if that's happening for you and your family around play, I want to set you free. And that is the whole point of the 30 Days of Play Challenge. So I hope you'll come and join us. Just go to laurafroyan.com slash play challenge and we'll get you all set up with a really nice detailed but doable journal lots of great activities and prompts to get you really thinking about the role of play in your life your role in your child's play and how to connect with your children on a deeper level how to get them playing more independently so that you have a little bit of time for yourself and to just bring a little bit more flow ease and joy into your life and into your family's life through play. So if you've ever struggled with play, we're tackling it all in this 30 days. I hope that you'll join us. 
So I think that our anxiety about not knowing the answer or the truth with a capital T comes from the way that most of us were parented and educated, that we grew up not learning to trust ourselves, not learning to get curious, learning that the answer lay without rather than within you know, that we're trained to not trust our intuition, especially girls. That's one of the reasons why so many of the mothers that I work with feel they lack so much confidence and so much intuition. I don't see that as much with the dads that I work with. They are much more likely to trust their intuition and to want to be intuitive. I don't think that we socialize boys to question or suppress their intuition the way that we do girls, you know? And so I think that that is a process if we are wanting to hold a space with our kids where they never lose their intuition and we have to do that work ourselves, you know, alongside them. Yeah, I think so. Like, that's really interesting that you say that, that, that difference between dads. Yeah. I, and I mean, it's not universal. It's just something that I've noticed no, no, over it, the years. Yeah. And I think anecdotally, yeah, definitely. And I think that trust as well. And not just, I think in order to foster that in our children, we have to trust them. And um, mm. we don't, we like, again, through no fault of our own, whether it's our, how we were parented, how we were schooled, we, you know, it's, and there's so much risk averse, you know, in education and parenting, we are very risk averse. And so um, having that trust and just stepping back and giving our children space to figure things out for themselves. Yeah, it's a bit scary, to be honest. But I think it's such a valuable thing that we can do. Yeah, I mean, I think even just for the parents of the youngest children, trusting them to move in their own time, trusting that they will roll over when they are ready, trusting them that they will come to sit when they are ready, you know, trusting that if they are spending 20 minutes looking at their hands and the way the light hits their hands, that that is a beautiful occupation for them, that, that they are occupying their time very well, that we don't need to put a rattle in their face. We don't need to adjust their focus. That's, there's a reason why they are drawn to spend that time, you know? And I mean, it starts that early, conveying that lack of trust, you know, that was likely conveyed to us too. It's not our fault, you know, but sitting back, doing less, kind of getting out of the way, you know? Yeah. I love this. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) another piece of Reggio that has always felt intimidating to me is that, well, there's two pieces. One, like the messy piece of it. It does seem messy. And I grew up in a home where mess wasn't tolerated. Mess made people feel anxious. And so I'm learning to tolerate a little bit more mess, but like really like rice all over my floor and under my feet, like that's not okay with me. So most of the time, if we're going to do that stuff, I honor like what I know to be true of me and what I can handle. And we do that stuff outside. But can we talk a little bit about maybe what some of the misconceptions are? Because I also like, I'm not going to set up a beautiful provocation that like for two hours setting it up and my kids use it for five minutes. That's not me. I'm not going to do that. I mean, if that's you, that's great. Wonderful. More power to you. But I don't think that that's necessary. So I'd love your perspective on that. Yes. I'm guessing you saw the rice on Pinterest. Yes. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's just so beautiful. Like all the color. I like um the workspace for children on that account on Instagram and her stuff is so beautiful. And I'm also like, nah, no. I mean, they're like there's, you know, because you can dye rice different colors and it's beautiful. And then five minutes later, it's all mixed together. And <laughs> Yeah, my husband has a very low tolerance for that. So I think as coming from an 
an education background and having had you know classroom context, I think my threshold is a little bit higher, but I have to be really conscious that, yeah, this is your home. You need to be comfortable with what you're doing. Everybody needs to be comfortable, the whole family. So I think that that's so important because, so we have a rice bin and I mistakenly allowed it to be in an area of our home where it caused me grumpiness and resentment towards my kids. And that was on me. So the kids were messy with it. It's rice. Of course they were going to be messy with it. Of course it was going to end up on the ground. And I wasn't honest with myself about my tolerance. I didn't hold that boundary for myself. And that's on me. You know, like it was my mistake to allow it in that part of the house. I cleaned it all up and moved it and took responsibility for the fact that that was not on the kids. It's rice. They're going to play with it. It's going to get messy. Like that's on me for allowing it into a space. I Like, I think it's really important to like hold our boundaries. It wasn't fair to them for me to relax a boundary that that was important for me to not feel resentful towards my kids, right? So I needed that boundary so that I didn't feel resentful. I relaxed that boundary. They got messy and it allowed resentment to creep in. And that's not on the kids. That's on me. I relaxed a boundary that I shouldn't have, that I should have held a boundary that honored me. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly. I have a similar story actually the other day. My children use a lot of clay as we've got an outdoor space where they can do it it doesn't come in the house but we also had the paddling pool out um my both of them were carrying it across the paddling pool and seeing what happened and it was fantastic because i, I let them do it because i was like it's going to dissolve and we can talk about that and we did and we had some wonderful discussions about what was happening to the clay so when this happened the next day and because this is the thing isn't it some days it's fine and other days it's not because if you're home all the time or a lot of the time with your children you know parenting it's not going to work at 8 a.m setting up a classroom and then having lots of support in the classroom and tidying it up together with your co-teachers or whatever you know it's your home and you have it's just days. you <laughs> for the most part and you have good days and bad days your your mood is allowed to you know change more so as a parent it does and so when they did it the second time I just wasn't in the right space um, and they were a bit confused because I was like no we're not doing this today and I explained you know and, and that is fine you know you just have to be honest and authentic yeah. with them like I'm not comfortable with this today and then sit with those emotions which was disappointment but we found something else to do with the clay so, I think yeah. we're talking about something that is fundamental to respectful parenting is understanding your window of tolerance and what behaviors fall in your window and what behaviors don't and what affects the size of your window, right? So this is something that is a no, like self-knowledge, awareness. So not just observing your kids, but observing yourself. Okay, so where is my window today? You know, like something that would fall outside of the window, you know, yesterday now is in the window, like becoming aware of it and communicating that clearly to our kids. Kids, right I love what you're saying <laughs> I love that way of thinking of it as a window that's actually really helpful yeah kids understand it too so you can definitely explain your window to kids and kids understand that their window is bigger or smaller too my kids talk about this all the time that like so my younger one is super silly most of the time and my older one has a window of tolerance for her silliness so that I mean then that window is bigger my older daughter knows that window is bigger in the afternoons it's bigger when she's got well rested it's much smaller first thing in the morning like she can't stand this 
you know, but we talk about the windows and then my older daughter will say, Evie, normally I love your silliness, but my window for silliness is very small right now. Can you go do your silliness somewhere else? (laughs) You know, I'm loving this discussion that we're having. So I think one question that people often have about like different approaches or pedagogies with early childhood is how do they fit in with things like the different ones? I feel like there are three classic ones that we hear about a lot as parents. There's Reggio, there's Montessori, and there's Waldorf. They're all pedagogies, all approaches to um, kind of how we think about how kids learn and grow, right? How do you see Reggio fitting in with a, like a Waldorf or a Montessori approach? So I, there's so much overlap, I think, especially with Montessori. I mean, Maria Montessori very much influenced Loris Malaguzzi's work. So there's that. There are some key differences um, in terms of there's a lot more emphasis in Reggio on the relationships between and learning in that community with others and that co-construction of knowledge. When you look at Montessori, for example, which is a method that you can apply, whereas Reggio is something that really needs to be translated and reinvented for your context. You really need to understand your values. Whereas with Montessori, you are able to kind of replicate that environment, that prepared environment with a lot of the beautiful materials that isolate those concepts. Okay, so I feel like what you're saying is that Montessori could almost be treated like a buffet where you kind of are just taking things, whereas Reggio is like, you know, going to an experiential dinner party. Yeah, that's a really, really helpful way of thinking about it, actually. Yeah, that's it. And it's, as I say, it's ever evolving and it's very much based on your research, if you're an educator, your research within your classroom, within your community, and your cultural context. And no regio context is going to look the same. Um, Because it's so heavily inspired by the individual participants. Exactly, in the wider community, there is so much emphasis on sort of participation, and it's called bringing in parents and having them involved in their children's learning and so I think and with Wardorf I mean I love it that we have so we kind of have an eclectic mix at home you know with the rhythm um, but there is a curriculum for Wardorf that you will follow and um, like in terms of reading and writing and things there's materials and resources that are Wardorf inspired for that approach whereas with Reggio there's no curriculum um, which is a bit daunting especially when you're a busy parent but I personally find it easier because I'm not having to follow something. I don't get stressed out because we've missed a day because we decided to go on a play date instead of doing that particular part of the curriculum. So it's holistic, it's embedded in just following your child's inquiries and curiosities, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So I don't, at home, I don't think there's any problem with having just a a lovely mix of all of these approaches because it's, for me, it's very much about those principles. It's having that image of the child, it's the listening, the emphasis on relationships and community, that environment that has, is rich in languages for children to express themselves with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think you can, you can Definitely. Yeah. It almost seems as if for you, and maybe this will be helpful for parents who are looking to bring some of these principles into their home, that the Reggio approach is more about the lens through which you view children. It's about the adult's perspective, that maybe some of the Montessori is more material-based, so you can have these specific materials in. And then Waldorf can provide some structures to your day using the rhythms and rituals that are so important to it. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. I think that's where Reggio fits so well with the respectful, responsive, peaceful parenting that's, mm-hmm. you know, we read so much about and there's a huge community for. It's very much similar values. They're just very clearly outlined as principles and it can help us foster learning at home. Um, so with a lot of the respectful parenting, like rise, you know, it's all about the connection. So mm-hmm. Magda Gerber's right approach is, you know, about having that connection with children. And I feel like Reggio is it's all about that but it goes a little bit further in how to it supports you in guiding your children in their learning yeah and following their interests uh, so that I mean I think we will all agree that when our children are interested in something they are a lot more engaged so any approach that kind of yeah focuses in that child-centered sort of philosophy yeah, absolutely. So when our children are naturally interested in something, we can go deeper in it and you can learn. I mean, so that's, I mean, that's the basis of interest-led learning is that understanding that you can learn anything in the context of a topic that your child is interested in. Maths, reading, writing, all of the like educational imperatives can happen within the context of what they're naturally drawn to and interested in. Yeah. All right. I love this conversation that we're having. Okay. So thank you so much for having this conversation. This was a lovely conversation about how we view children and how we view our role as their parents and partners as they grow. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. And before we go, I just want to remind you one last time to make sure you sign up for our 30 Days of Play Challenge. It starts in just a couple days and you don't want to miss a thing. This is one of the most fun and engaging times in my community and I would really love to have you as a part of it. We're going to be doing daily prompts. You'll get emails from me with doable small steps, things you can do to bring more joy and play and fun into your homes. Plus all of the episodes of the Balanced Parent Podcast in the month of January are going to be focused in on deep dives into certain aspects of play. So the podcast is going to be aligned and kind of flowing with this play challenge. So you're not going to want to miss out. You're not going to want to be left behind. I really think you're going to want to be in on the challenge with the daily prompts that you get in your email the journal to move you along, joining in in my Instagram community using the hashtag 30 days of play and in my balanced parenting community on Facebook too. So if you're not in those groups, if you're not following me on Instagram, I want you to go ahead, sign up for the play challenge, get into my Facebook group and start following me on Instagram so you can be fully engaged and supported in bringing more flow, joy, fun, and connection back into your family's life through the beautiful medium of play. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.